Last week I bought coffee with Carrie in an airport Starbucks. Actually, it was a latte. And the price? Well, it was exorbitant, to say the least. Did you know that according to USA Today, Starbucks can serve a cup of coffee 19,000 different ways? That's a lot of choices. 19,000 ways to serve a cup of coffee. I think that's a parable of our times, really. Wherever we go, whatever we do, we have so many choices, don't we? I mean, even the grocery store is full of choices. So many choices, it boggles our minds. Quite frankly, the truth is that choices breed dissatisfaction. We are never satisfied because there's always something else on the menu that we couldn't choose. Something else on the agenda that we could have done but we can't do because we did something else. And we end up wanting more and craving the latest choice out there. So as Christians, as followers of the Lord, how do we live in a world full of choices? We live by faith. There's no other way to do it. And our faith choices prioritize our lifestyles. All our little choices, of course, add up in the end to a lifestyle. Living by faith means making choices that are guided by faith. Hebrews 11 is the Hall of Faith chapter. And, and here we learn how these heroes of the faith made choices that prioritized their lives according to God's priorities and not theirs. There are always more options available to us than we can handle. So our faith should prioritize those options as we follow God. We cannot do everything. We cannot have everything. Certainly we cannot do everything. So our faith choices prioritize our lifestyles. How did they do it in their day? And how do we do it in ours? Principle number one, by faith, we choose to obey God's will based on God's promises. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. Verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, his one and only son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered, that is Abraham considered, that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him, Isaac, back as a type, literally as a parable, as a teaching story. God will test your faith. God will test my faith. He tested Abraham's faith. The trials of life are brought to us as a means of God testing our faith. And the choices we make when we are going through the trials of life will either be faith choices or faithless choices. 
We will either trust God that He knows what He is doing, or we will trust ourselves that we know more than God. Abraham faced a choice on Mount Moriah that must have shaken him to the core of his soul. God had promised him a son. And God had promised that through that son, God would grow a great nation that was more than the sands of the sea, more than the stars in heaven. Finally, when Abraham was a hundred years old, Isaac was born. Some years later, God tested Abraham. He ordered him to take his one and only son. Now, Abraham had another son named Ishmael. But this was the unique son because God had said that through Isaac, I will grow my nation. And so he was the unique son of Abraham. And God told Abraham to take his unique son, Isaac, up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him on an altar to God. And what did Abraham do? He obeyed God. He bound Isaac on the altar on top of the wood and he raised his knife to kill his unique son and sacrifice him on an altar before God. And only then did God finally intervene and a ram there caught in the thicket by its horns was given by God to be sacrificed instead of Isaac. And Abraham then released his son, and of course he sacrificed the ram on the altar, and he named this place Jehovah-Jireh. Jehovah-Jireh, my God will provide. My God will provide. And he did. I have to tell you, I have always struggled with this story in Genesis 22. It bothers me that God would test a man, that God would test a father that far. How can God be a good God and still put us to such extreme tests of faith? And make no mistake, God did it. Because both in Genesis 22 and Hebrews 11, we are told that God did this as a test. In fact, the word here in Hebrews translated tested is also translated elsewhere in Scripture tempted. Except that God doesn't tempt because tempt means to evil. God does test. So God tested him. How can God test a man, a father, that far? That's a, that's a real test of faith. And yet he did. And he does. God intentionally puts us in situations that create conflict in our souls. We are conflicted inside by the choices we have to make. And it's set up by God. Do I do what God wants me to do even when I feel like it goes against what I think is fair and right? 
How, how could God put me in that kind of a situation? I mean, when I'm being so faithful to God, right? Now, don't tell me you've never asked God those kinds of questions. God, I'm being faithful to you. How could you put me in this situation? Is that fair, God? Abraham was surely conflicted in a number of ways. He knew, he knew that child sacrifice was a moral evil. He knew that murder was wrong. It was against God's character. He knew that Isaac was the child of promise, yet God was asking him to kill him. He loved his son. He knew that God specifically had told him that through Isaac God would grow a great nation. So how could God grow a great nation through Isaac if Abraham kills him on Mount Moriah? I mean, talk about an internal conflict. How then did Abraham resolve that conflict? Well, the verses tell us. Verse 19 tells us. He considered, he thought about it, and he thought that God is able to raise men even from the dead from which he also received him back as a parable. He, Abraham thought about it, and he decided that God must have a plan that was bigger than this choice. God must have a plan that is bigger than this situation. Abraham knew that God had promised to grow a nation through Isaac, so he concluded that God would resurrect Isaac if he had to. But there had to be another plan. This did not fit with everything he knew about God and God's character and God's promises, so there had to be another way. Even if it meant that God resurrected him, God had another plan. Now, that is quite a statement of faith from a man who certainly had never seen a resurrection and didn't even know what we know from all of Scripture. Abraham chose to trust the promise of God and the nature of God over the situation. And that's what it boils down to, doesn't it? He chose to believe that God would provide another way out to keep his promise. He could obey God's will based upon God's promises. And we have to choose to trust God's promises over our situations. We have to choose to trust God's nature, God's character, over our situations and our problems when we are tested. That, in a nutshell, is faith. William Carey, often called the father of modern missions, began his missionary career to India in 1793. He labored in that country for 40 continuous years, never returning to England, to his home, through all that time. Carey was a prodigious translator, translating portions of scripture into over a dozen Indian languages. One afternoon, after 20 years of working in the land of India, a fire raged through his printing plant and warehouse, and all of his printing equipment was destroyed. But even more tragically, 
almost all of the manuscripts that he had carefully translated the Word of God into these Indian languages, almost all of them were consumed by fire. Twenty years of work, gone, just like that. Nothing to show for it. You don't have computer backup, Xerox or anything else. Gone. Twenty years of work. How would he respond to that? Well, Carey wrote a letter to his pastor friend, Andrew Murray, back in England. And he said, The ground must be labored over again, but we are not discouraged. Wow, I'd have been discouraged. We have all been supported under the affliction and preserved from discouragement. To me, the consideration of the divine sovereignty and wisdom has been very supporting. I endeavored to improve our affliction last Lord's Day from Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. I principally dwelt upon two ideas. And these are the two ideas he dwelt upon as he thought of that. God has a sovereign right to dispose of us as he pleases. And number two, we ought to acquiesce in all that God does with us and to us. Why? Because we can trust God. God is good. And God's promises are real. In other words, you can trust God in whatever situation you find yourself. You may be conflicted. You may question. You may wonder. But in the end, you can obey God knowing that he knows what he's doing and that his promises are sure and that his character is steadfast and reliable. You can trust his word even if you can't see his solutions. I like the words of D. Elton Trueblood. Faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservation. That's good. Trust without reservation. Can you trust God without reservation for whatever you face this week, next month? Abraham trusted God without reservation. He couldn't see God's solution, but he trusted God's promises, and so can we. By faith, then, principle number one, we choose. These are choices we make. We choose to obey God's will based on God's promises. Secondly, by faith, we choose to trust God for the future, even in death. Verse 22, verse 20, excuse me. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Three examples of faith, faith in these verses, faith choices. The examples of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. All three men demonstrate their faith choices in the face of death. So when we face death, we find out a great deal about our faith by the choices we make at the end of our lives. How we face death is a matter of faith. Isaac was dying, and he called his two sons to his bedside for a blessing. And Isaac made a faith choice about the future. He chose 
to bless Jacob over Esau and predicted that God would grow the nation of promise through Jacob instead of Esau. Now, Hebrews 11 doesn't bother to tell us that it happened by trickery, right? Doesn't tell us that Rebekah tricked him into blessing Jacob by coating him with hair and all of the other things. So how is it a faith choice if he was deceived? Because after he finds out, he says, no, this is God's will, and it is through Jacob that God will grow his nation. So it is still his faith choice. As he dies, he looks into the future and says, this is God's plan and I trust it. Jacob, in his turn, worshipped God, leaning on the top of his staff, and blessed the two sons of Joseph. The story of Genesis 48 takes place in Egypt. Jacob is dying. He is far from the land of promise. You remember he ends up in Egypt because of the famine and because Joseph is living in Egypt and God is providing for them. He is far from the land of promise. He is dying far from the land of promise. And he takes the two sons of Joseph and he blesses them as he looks into God's plan for the future. Now, Jacob does an interesting thing. He actually crosses his hands to bless Ephraim over Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph. God is going to bless you, Ephraim, greater than God will use Manasseh. And Joseph is horrified. He says, no, 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 you got it all wrong. You messed it up. And he tries to, to move his father's hands and he tries to correct him. And Jacob says, no, it is through Ephraim that God's plan will come. He will be greater than his brother Manasseh. God will bless Manasseh too. But it is he is looking into the future and he's saying, I trust what God has told me over all other viewpoints. That's a faith choice. And all of it comes true, of course, hundreds of years later. Then Joseph, as he comes to the end of his life, he faces death. He is in Egypt, not in God's promised land. And he orders on his deathbed that his bones should be saved and that they should be taken all the way back to the promised land where he should be buried because that is what God has promised. That is God's plan, not Egypt. It would be nearly 500 years later but Moses, of course, will intentionally take the bones of Joseph with him into the wilderness. And Joshua will intentionally make sure that the bones of Joseph are buried in the promised land. All of it is a statement of faith. It is based on the fact that God will one day keep his promise to this nation. He spoke of the exodus, the departure from the land of Egypt. He knew God's plan and he trusted it. And in death, he believed in God's future. So in death, we must believe in God's future. How we face death is a faith choice that we make in life. We trust God for the future even in death. I mean, tough times, hardships only serve to drive us 
to God in faith, unlike those who deny God's goodness and question God's faithfulness. Have you ever noticed that the same kinds of circumstances drive some people to God and drive some people away from God? Same circumstances. I like the words of Stephen Curtis Chapman. He said, I have learned that we can control where we allow these things that we can't understand to fall. They either fall between us and God and we become angry, or we allow these things to fall outside of us and press us in closer to God. You can't control the circumstances. You can't control the test because God is sovereign and God brings those things into our lives. But we can choose to be either on one side or the other of those circumstances. They can either drive us to God or drive us away from God depending upon our faith or faithless choice in how we deal with those circumstances. Principle number three. By faith we choose to seek the rewards of Christ over the pleasures of earth. Verse 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. Right, we begin with the parents of Moses actually here as an example of faith, Amram and Jochebed, who made a faith choice to save their child Moses when Pharaoh had ordered that all male babies should be killed. That was a faith choice. Now, in what way was it a faith choice? Isn't that what most any parent would do? I mean, other parents in Israel must have tried to come up with ways to save their babies too, right? So how was this a faith choice in a special way? A special case of faith. Well, the answer seems to be bound up in the expression, because they saw he was beautiful. All right. Doesn't every parent think their baby is beautiful? I mean, come on. Every baby is beautiful to a parent. Well, the word actually refers to more than physical beauty here. The word means well-bred and was used of nobility, those who would be leaders. They believed that Moses was a special child, one who would be a leader or a noble among God's people. Now, the nation of Israel had already been looking for a deliverer from Egypt. They believed that God was going to send a deliverer. It seems likely that Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, believed that Moses, when he was born, was born to be that deliverer. In fact, 
Jewish tradition believes that as well. Jewish tradition says that Amram, the father of Moses, was given a revelation of God that Moses would be the deliverer and that he trusted that revelation. We don't know that for certain, but it seems clear that this decision to not kill their child was a, was a faith choice in God's plan to save the nation from Egypt. All right, Moses, when he grew up, he chose to side with the slave nation of Israel rather than to be part of the royal family of Egypt. That was clearly a faith choice. He looked at all the riches of Egypt. He could have enjoyed all the pleasures of this wealthy nation and of the royal family. All he had to do was just sort of not look at the plight of Israel. Just ignore it. Simple thing. He could have turned the other way. But that would have been rejecting God's will for his life and therefore sin. Instead, Moses considered the disgrace of Christ, for Christ did, did that as well. He gave up the pleasures of this world to die on a cross. So he considered the disgrace of Christ as greater than the riches of Egypt. How did he do that? The verse tells us, by looking to the coming reward. You see his motive? By looking to the reward. The, the word for reward means the wages to be paid to you, the payback for what you do now. Moses looked ahead to the payback. Where's the payback? Well, it's in heaven. It's in eternity. He looks ahead to the payback and he says, I can take the disgrace, I can take the humiliation of all of this because I know that there's a greater payback coming. And I can trust in that eternal payback. Faith always has this kind of eternal perspective. Faith weighs the riches of this earth against the riches of heaven and chooses heaven. Our future reward makes our present suffering sufferable. We can go through what we need to go through now because there's a payback coming. And that makes it all worthwhile. See, we don't have to hold on to the pleasures of this world because we know there is a greater payback coming in heaven. So Moses left Egypt not fearing the anger of the king. Now, that has to refer to the Exodus, not his first leaving from Egypt, right? Because you remember when he first leaves Egypt, what happens? He leaves in fear. Remember, he kills the, 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 the men there and then he's afraid of the king, we're told, and he takes off into the wilderness. He got a kind of head of God, you see. Kind of tried to do things his own way, and it didn't turn out. And God had to teach him for 40 years in the wilderness what real faith was like. And when Moses comes back, and he leads the nation out in the Exodus, now he doesn't fear the king. Because now he's learned to truly trust God and God's plan, not his plan, for what happens. So he persevered in leading the people to freedom because we're told he was seeing the one who is unseen. See, he can see God by faith. And so he can lead the nation to freedom 
by faith. This world has nothing on him. This world system held no value for, for him any longer. The king meant nothing. The riches of Egypt meant nothing. This world had nothing on him. And now he could follow God. The cover of Time magazine in November of last year, 2009, reflected the views of this world regarding the first decade of the 21st century. As the decade, the first decade, came to a close, they reflected on that decade, and Time magazine famously called it the decade from hell. The lead article said, book ended by 9-1-1 at the start and a financial wipeout at the end, the first 10 years of this century will very likely go down as the most dispiriting and disillusioning decade Americans have lived through in the post-World War II era. We're still weeks away from the end of 09, but it's not too early to pass judgment. Call it the decade from hell, or the reckoning, or the decade of broken dreams, or the lost decade. Call it whatever you want, just give thanks that it's nearly over. Well, that's the American perspective anyway. Just give thanks, it's nearly over. Well, we're in 2010, is it a whole lot better? <laughs> All right, maybe the times have been difficult this past 10 years. But we as Christians have a whole different perspective, don't we? This world has nothing for us, ultimately. It doesn't really matter, ultimately. We do not live for the prosperity of today. Maybe we're just finding out what Christians in other parts of the world already knew. We just had to suffer a little bit, and I can't even really call it heavy suffering, can you? Maybe a few inconveniences. We haven't even learned what Christians elsewhere have learned that this world has nothing for us, ultimately. Unfortunately, we Christians, especially here in America, are often too much in love with what we have, and so a few little inconveniences become the decade from hell. And even we Christians are too much like the little boy who was raising a fearful cry with his hand inside of an expensive Chinese vase in this wealthy home. And he couldn't pull that hand out, according to Helmut Thielicke. Parents and neighbors tugged with, with all kinds of efforts to try and get his hand out, and he only wailed louder until finally they decided they had no choice, they had to break this expensive vase to get his hand out. And when they broke this beautiful and expensive vase, they found his hand in a fist clutching a penny he had seen at the bottom of the vase. And he wouldn't let go of the penny to get his hand out. Aren't we often like that? We're so intent on hanging on to, with a death grip, the pennies of this world that we can't even see the riches of heaven. We need to let go of the pennies of this world. 
for the riches of heaven. And that is a faith choice. Fourth principle. By faith, we choose to do the unreasonable to achieve the impossible. Verse 29. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Faith sometimes seems unreasonable. We have three examples of an unreasonable faith here. I mean, the people of Israel are in view now as examples of faith. I don't know about you, but that seems a trifle odd to me, considering the next 40 years of wilderness experience, that they are held up here as examples of faith. But they did exhibit faith as they walked through the Red Sea on dry land, it was still faith, even if it was driven by desperation because the Egyptian armies were there behind them. But that's not unlike our faith, isn't it? Sometimes our faith in God is driven by the problems we face outside of us in life. But it's still faith in God. And the people passed through the waters of the Red Sea, which then swallow up the Egyptian army. I mean, the parting of the Red Sea was a miracle performed by God, but it still required an act of faith by the people. They still had to walk through there. Those towering waters around them, whatever the case may be, they still had to walk through there. And then God performed the miracle. It, it was unreasonable. This was not scientifically possible. Yet God then swallowed up the army behind them when they chose to follow him by faith. Jericho. Jericho is another example of a totally unreasonable faith. Can you imagine? They are told to march around this city for seven days, seven times, and blow trumpets. Now that is an absolutely silly thing to do when you're going to attack a fortified city. It's absolute silliness. It's totally unreasonable. And by faith they did it anyway, and God imploded the walls in a miracle. Rahab, the prostitute, made a significant faith choice when the spies came to her house long before the armies of Israel were even there. She chose to save those spies from those who wanted to kill them and to follow God by faith. It was an unreasonable decision living inside of one of the fortified cities of Canaan. But by faith, the impossible took place. And God in turn saves Rahab and her family when he destroyed Jericho. And she ends up, according to Matthew 1.5, in the very line of Messiah as one of the mothers of Messiah. Oh, God is remarkable, isn't he? From prostitute to mother in the line of Messiah. God specializes in turning the unreasonable faith choices we make into the impossible solutions he creates. Unfortunately, we're more prone 
to stay reasonable. I'm a reasonable guy. I like a reasonable faith, don't you? Give me faith that is reasonable. And maybe boring, but at least it's reasonable. Rather than to live by faith in the God of the impossible. Tony Campolo tells the story of a town where all the residents are ducks. Every Sunday, the ducks waddle out of their houses and waddle down Main Street and waddle into church to worship God. The duck choir waddles up to sing, and the duck preacher waddles up to preach. And he opens the Word of God, and he says, Ducks, God has given you wings. With wings you can fly. With wings you can mount up and soar. No walls can confine you. No fences can hold you. You have wings. God has given you wings. And you can fly like birds. And all the ducks shout, Amen. Amen. And then, the duck preacher waddles off the platform and out the door and waddles home. And the duck people waddle out the doors and waddle home. And I think of that story sometimes on Sunday mornings. (laughs) Are we just a bunch of ducks waddling around when God wants us to soar? Do we waddle in and worship God and say amen and then waddle out and do the same reasonable, boring faith stuff? I'm afraid I'm convicted by that quite often. Because I'll tell you, I like a reasonable faith. (laughs) Even if it is a boring faith. But God, God, God wants to do the impossible through the unreasonable by our faith choices. And the heroes enshrined in the hall of faith convict me of my very reasonable faith that fails to see the greatness of an impossible God. So faith is proven by our choices. Faith choices prioritize our lifestyles. God brings situations into our lives that test our faith. He expects us to make choices based on that faith in Him. And these faith choices then reflect the values God implants in our hearts. In 2009, an article in the UK's Telegraph reported that of all women in the UK who find out through prenatal testing that their baby will have Down syndrome, about 90% choose to have an abortion. 90%. ABC News reports a near identical rate among women in the United States of America. 92% of women who find out they have a baby with Down syndrome decide to abort the baby. 92%. Such troubling statistics makes the story of Ellen and Al She that much sweeter. Ellen and Al, of course, like all parents, were thrilled when they were told that they were going to have a baby boy, but then the doctor said, oh, there's something major wrong here. Something that is incompatible with life in this little child. At best, the doctor told them he might survive for 6 to 12 months. Probably he would die in the first day. The doctor explained that it would take around two weeks, but they consented to have an amniocentesis done, and he told them that they would have to make a decision regarding terminating the pregnancy at that point. And later that evening, they talked. What should we do, Ellen said. 
I never thought I would even think this, but do you think it would be more compassionate to terminate the pregnancy? She felt horrible even thinking about that, what the world would call reasonable solution. Was it the more loving thing to do, given the problems that their child would face and the pain and the suffering the child would go through? After a moment of silence, Al responded, No, I think we should do no harm. Trust God. And she was relieved, because that's what she wanted to do too. And so they trusted God. From that moment on, they began to prepare themselves to welcome their son into the world, no matter what came. Looking back... On that critical moment, Ellen offers this word. The most important day in my life is the day we decided to let our son live. Soon after their decision to keep the baby, she writes that they named him Elijah. They weren't going to call him the baby anymore. A couple of weeks later, the doctor called back with the results of amniocentesis. Elijah was indeed diagnosed with Down syndrome. The doctor asked if they had made a decision regarding termination. She was surprised when Ellen replied, Why would we terminate? It's only Down syndrome. April 8th, Ellen gave birth to Elijah Timothy Shee. After a few weeks in the hospital, he came home. And as of last year, 2009, Elijah is a happy and healthy four-year-old. Yes, he has Down syndrome. And yes, he faces many struggles in the years ahead. And yes, Al and Ellen know the path will not be easy that God has called them to follow. But they have no regrets about their choice. Folks, that's what we call a modern faith choice. That's what it takes to be in God's hall of faith. Father, it's easy to believe in you when everything's reasonable, when everything's going well. It's much harder when things are not. But that's when we know we have to trust you. That your call upon our life includes the people and the places you have brought into our lives and that we can trust you implicitly, and that we can follow your will because you are a God of promise and a God of hope and a God of goodness and a God of grace. In Jesus' name, keep our eyes looking to you. Amen.